0: A few years ago, a woman by the name of Joanne Barnaby was out in a remote part of the Canadian wilderness where she lived, but she actually went out into the wilderness away from her home with her dog, Joey. After a few hours of hiking and going through the forest, she heard Joey growling behind her. And when she turned around to see what he was growling at, she saw a black wolf staring them down. The wolf was skinny and it was alone. Wolves usually hunt in packs, and so the fact that it was skinny and alone means that it probably had been cast out of its pack for being too weak and maybe too old. And so the fact that it was skinny probably also indicates that it was starving and was willing to do some desperate things to try to stay alive. And so despite the fact that wolves naturally fear human beings and will typically stay away from them as, if possible... This wolf began hunting Joanne and her dog, Joey. And by her own testimony, for 12 hours, as the day ended and night began to fall, this wolf hunted her and her dog. And it was smart. It cut her off from trails that would take her back to the road, back to her truck, and ca- caused them to push deeper and deeper into the wilderness where they would be more and more isolated And also, she said, it tried various things to try to separate her from her dog so that it could attack one of them and be more successful. Having left her gun at home, that's probably mistake number one, Joanne was in a desperate state. Again, it was dark. She was unable to defend herself. She, by her own testimony, was filled with mosquito bites and started to consider the reality that she might die in the wilderness. What saved her life was a mother bear that came along looking for her cubs. And so an actually dangerous situation became a potentially dangerous situation in two different ways. What she decided to do was to put herself intentionally between the mother bear and its cubs, hoping that would scare off the wolf... And then she and her dog would be able to escape, and that's precisely what happened. She was able to take two predatory animals and use them against each other to secure her own safety and that of her dog. This is an unusual thing. But it's not unusual for predators to attack prey. That's how many things work in the animal kingdom. Predators live. By taking life from others. And this wolf, because it had been cut off from its pack and was starving and desperate, was willing to turn to another, a, a dog or perhaps even a human being as prey to try to live. Predators live by taking life from others. And again, we see this in the animal kingdom. There are different kinds of predators in the animal kingdom. There's the kind that I just described that actually kill their prey and eat it. That's not the only kind of predator that exists in the animal world. Parasites are also a predator. And they exist not by killing the host, but by living off of the host, but by living off of the same food source as the host in some cases, or living off the blood of the host in others. And so predators are part of life, but there are different kinds of predators. And the truth of the matter is that while there are lots of predators in the animal kingdom, people sometimes behave like predators as well. And this can be described in multiple ways. One of the maybe most famous examples that we could find in our own current life and culture is uh, the former financier Bernie Madoff. He took billions of dollars from people and was supposedly investing in and was giving them false statements, but basically he was just living off of their money until eventually his scheme was exposed. He was a financial predator and he used the wealth of many as his prey until eventually he was caught. And so predators live by taking life from others. It can be literal life or it can be financial life in the case of human beings. Here in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to warn against spiritual predators. That's the really the point of the section that I read a few moments ago in Luke chapter 20 verses 45 through 47. Jesus warned his disciples about spiritual predators. And we see the beginning of that warning in verse 45, where the scripture says, while all the people were listening, and so Jesus is about to say some harsh words about other people to the disciples, but he's going to say them in the hearing of the people that he is describing, which is pretty amazing. Verse 45 goes on to say, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, so we know the disciples are the object of this teaching, And his statement to them began in verse 46, which says, Beware of the teachers of the law. Now you understand that the word beware is a word of warning. It's it's a word that tells you to have your defenses up. It's a word that tells you to be on the lookout for someone who is hunting you, for someone who is out to harm you in some way. And Jesus says, these teachers of the law are like spiritual predators, as we'll see in a moment. Now who is... Who is this group of people called the teachers of the law? Well, these are people who are religious leaders in the times of Jesus. Throughout the uh, ages of God's people in the Old Testament, there were various um, religious tasks that needed to be performed. We're familiar with the priests who offered sacrifices and maintained the temple structure and offered guidance to the people of God and even taught the law, the word of God. But in order for God's word to continue to exist, because they lived in an age before documents could be easily reproduced electronically, it was necessary for people to copy and recopy the word of God, the scrolls on which Moses' law and the other writings of Scripture were were, uh, recorded. And so, as these uh, ancient manuscripts would wear out, there were men who came along and were trained in how to uh, reproduce these manuscripts laboriously by hand, and they became known as scribes. That's maybe if you're uh, familiar with a different translation of the Scripture than the one I'm reading. That might be a word that you're more familiar with, the scribes. That's who Jesus is talking about. Now, in calling them teachers of the law, Jesus also highlights another function that this group of men had. Not only did they copy the Old Testament law, the scriptures, all of the scriptures of the Old Testament, but they also studied them in depth. They handled them. They spent time with them. And so these were people who were looked up to in their world religiously. These were not the priests, generally speaking, and they were not from the priestly tribe known as the Levites. Over time, I think that's how the scribes started. They started as priests, but over time, as God's people developed, uh, this this function of scribe moved from being uh, performed by the professionals, the, the priests, you might call them, to the lay people. And so many of these teachers of the law were Pharisees. They were people who made their living doing something else, but in their spare time, they spent time copying God's Word, reading God's Word, discussing God's Word, and not just God's Word itself, but also the oral traditions that had come up, and even the written traditions that had come up to try to describe and and explain the Word of God to people. And so these were lay people, but they were very, very knowledgeable lay people. They were people who knew God's Word in a very uh, greater sense than the average person. And Jesus looks at these teachers of the law, these scribes, as a potential spiritual threat to His disciples. And in this section, He's going to detail why. Now the truth of the matter is that a lot of the details that Jesus uses in this passage have changed. But the existence of spiritual predators has not changed. Just as anything that has value in our world will be counterfeited, so spiritual things, the genuine truth of God will also be, the, the value of that will be seen by others and will be desired by other people. And so the words that Jesus gives to the disciples about the teachers of the law can be understood and and even applied in our own life, which I will seek to do in this message. Jesus, in this section, warns his disciples about these spiritual predators called the scribes or the teachers of the law. And let's look at the characteristics that make up spiritual predators. Not every one of these will apply in every situation. But some of them will apply enough that they kind of tip off the disciples who are aware to the existence or the possibility that someone is a spiritual predator. The first thing I want us to see about spiritual predators is that spiritual predators don't care enough about spiritual truth. Now, that's a surprising thing to say because these were men who should have and seem to care quite a bit about spiritual truth. They were the handlers of God's Word. They were the the, uh, people who copied God's Word. And so they knew the Hebrew language better, far better than the average Israelite did in the time of Jesus, and they spent much of their free time, as I said, copying the word and reading it and studying it and talking about it and talking about the oral tradition and the written tradition that was grown up around it. These people were immersed in God's word in many ways. And yet the way that Jesus is going to describe them, we're going to see that they don't care nearly enough about it as they should. Now, they do like truth to some extent. And if we turn back just a couple of verses to one of the previous paragraphs we've looked at, We can see how they care a little bit, or to some extent, about spiritual truth. But before we do that, let me just reorient you to where we are in the Scriptures. In this section of Luke, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. The betrayal, the cross, and the grave are coming for Jesus in just a few days. Earlier in this week, Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem as a king. And everyone who knew the Old Testament to any degree understood that Jesus was intentionally taking upon himself the symbols and words that the Messiah that was promised, the coming king, would have. And so there was a great deal of of anticipation and spiritual energy around this week. And after Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king, he goes to the temple And he begins to clear out the people who were taking advantage of the people of God in the temple, and he begins to teach, and he teaches with great authority. And his teaching with great authority attracts a crowd, but it also attracts controversy. And so some of the spiritual opponents of Jesus come along, and they try to get him to answer what they think are hard questions, and Jesus just he just whips them. He just defeats them easily each time. Now, one of these challenges that Jesus had received was from the Sadducees. And they were the ones who controlled the temple. They controlled the physical structure of the sacrifices and the, um, the, the religious worship in Israel. And these Sadducees were theological liberals in many ways. They only held to part of God's word, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They were, they were, um, they were not really strong spiritually as, as the Pharisees considered themselves to be. And they were not as powerful, really, in terms of, um, the national consciousness as the Pharisees were. The Pharisees controlled religion outside of Jerusalem. The Sadducees controlled it inside of Jerusalem. So there's great tension between these groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask him the question that we looked at in our previous session last week Whose husband will she be in the resurrection, right? This woman who was married to seven brothers consecutively. Whose husband will she be? Well, Jesus dismisses their stupid question and uses it as an opportunity to teach about eternity. And at the end of his discussion, notice what happens. In verse 39, here in Luke chapter 20, the Bible says, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. Who is this group? It's the same group that Jesus is condemning in our passage this morning. They like what Jesus said about the resurrection. They like the fact that he smacked around, verbally speaking, the Sadducees by his response. And so they, this shows that they do have some care and concern for the truth of God's word. But they don't care nearly enough about it. And we see that in the next section. In verse 41, Jesus turns the tables. They've been trying to ask him stump, stumper type questions, questions that would stump him, and he's been you know, taking care of them easily. Now he's going to turn the tables on them and he's going to ask a real stumper In verse 41, Jesus said to them, why is it said that Messiah is the son of David? Everyone believed this. They all believed that Messiah would be in the descent of kings from King David, and they weren't wrong about that. But Jesus is going to put some scriptural concepts together and ask them, how how can these things be squared? And so he says, why is it said that Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, a footstool for your feet. So Jesus quotes scripture back to them and says in verse 44, David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? In their setting, a man would never call his son Lord. Just the opposite, in fact. And so Jesus pulls these truths out of scripture and he presents this question and he gets no answer. Nor does he get follow-up questions. People like the scribes, the teachers of the law, should have been very interested in this. They should have said, tell us more, Lord, especially after Jesus gave such a great answer to the Sadducees. You would expect their hunger for truth to emerge. You would expect them to want Jesus to say more, even if they didn't ultimately accept what he had to say. Jesus has asked a very intriguing question here. And someone who loves God's word and is interested in God's word should want to engage in that discussion, but they don't. These teachers of the law don't show nearly the interest in God's word that you would expect. And this is why Jesus goes on the attack against them in verse 45. And so these teachers of the law, these spiritual predators, one thing about them is they care somewhat about the word of God, but not nearly as much as they should. They should have wanted to know the meaning and application of of God's truth as Jesus has asked this question, but they don't. Now, not all scribes were like this. We find from other passages of the New Testament that some of these men were actual, actually became followers of Christ. So Jesus isn't saying this applies to everyone. He's saying it applies to so many in this group that I can speak in a broad category. But some scribes do actually have a deep appreciation for the word of God. They follow in the tradition of Ezra, the first uh, real scribe who's mentioned personally in the scriptures where it says this about him in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, and then verse 10. It says, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance. And I don't like the NIV's translation here. The word observance kind of masks what it's saying. This verse is telling us that Ezra studied God's word and he applied it to himself. He did it. He put it into practice in his life. That's what the word observance means. He devoted himself to the study and practice of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is what distinguishes a true teacher of God's Word from a predator. True teachers of God's Word are interested in God's Word and they want to put it into practice in their own lives. And so one problem with spiritual predators then is they don't care enough about spiritual truth. They care some but not nearly as much as they should. Now in our passage, beginning in verse 46, Jesus starts to lay out some of the other characteristics that we can see in the lives of spiritual predators. And he's going to give us some descriptions that, taken together, sort of describe the biggest problem that a spiritual predator has. A spiritual predator has a severe spiritual problem, a heart problem. And it's a heart that cares too much about others, in a bad way, and not nearly enough about God. The reason these scribes are incurious about the teaching of God's Word is that God is not the main concern on their radar at all. They're far more concerned about other people and what those other people think of them. And that's what makes them dangerous. And so in verse 46, Jesus is going to tell us another thing about spiritual predators, which is that they feed on the admiration of others. Spiritual predators feed on the admiration of others. That's, at the bottom, their core problem, spiritually speaking. Look with me at verse 46, where Jesus describes this. It says, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. In this section, Jesus is going to describe the core spiritual problems. And he's going to say that predators feed on the admiration of others in three ways. First, they dress to impress. They want the admiration of others, so they dress in ways that will cause others to be impressed with them. We see that in verse 46 where it says, they like to walk around in flowing robes. Now, it's unclear from what we know about the first century if they had a special type of robe that would sort of designate them as scribes or if they just bought better clothes than the average guy. The average guy was buying off the rack, you know, at JCPenney or whatever. And the scribes maybe were going to a more specialized store. They might have been buying bespoke clothing that was measured and tailored to make them look good. Or maybe the fact that it's described as a flowing robe means that it was extra long. But one way or another, these men Try to manufacture admiration from other people by looking better than other people in the way that they dressed. And the truth of the matter is that this still exists among spiritual predators. Now, I'm not at all saying that just because someone looks good when they're teaching that they are, for that reason, a spiritual predator. But what I am saying is that those who, in our world, fit the mold of spiritual predator in many ways often fall into this category as well. And this can be seen in many different ways. Maybe they wear a clerical collar. Not so much to indicate to others that they are someone who's there to help spiritually, but because it gives them a sense of preferential treatment when they go out in public. Maybe they wear business suits and ties, and maybe really nice business suits and ties, so that people... Uh, give them a certain amount of respect when they go out into the world. Maybe they indicate uh, by the way they dress that they're a cut above. In another way, there's actually an Instagram account called Preacher Sneakers, where some of these mega church pastors spend like thousands of dollars on the shoes that they wear, and someone has has put together like photos of these guys wearing these really expensive expensive shoes. I didn't know any pair of shoes could cost that much. (laughs) But apparently there are people out there and one of the ways they indicate that they are special is by spending a lot of money on their footwear. So there can be all kinds of ways in which this turns out. But Jesus says, beware of someone who's always dressing to impress you. Now again, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to look good It doesn't mean that it's a sin to wear nice clothing. It doesn't mean that because somebody wears nice clothing and also teaches that they're somehow a spiritual threat. It's one way of indicating how much the opinion of others means to them. That's the point. They do it to get attention, and they crave that attention. They want that attention. That's what makes them dangerous. And their clothing is just one indicator of the admiration that they seek from other people. They dress to impress. Number two, they expect respect in public. They expect respect in public. We see that in verse 46, which says, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. These are people who want to be known for their spiritual position. They want to be recognized out in the secular, in quotes, world. When they go to the marketplace to buy something or sell something, because remember, these are lay people, and so they were involved in commerce in every way. They want people to come to them, and they want to be addressed in a particular way. That's what Jesus is indicating in verse 46 when he says, they want to be greeted with respect. And we don't know if they had a particular title that they expected to um, be applied to them. Probably that's the case. But it means that when they were spoken to, they wanted the people who spoke to them to recognize that they were in a separate category, that they were a cut above. Years ago, I was running a conference, like way long, 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 long time before I came to Calvary. I was running a conference. It was one of my jobs at another ministry that I ran. And um, a man called to register for the conference. And when I did the very basic things of taking his name, he would not tell me his first name. He says, I only go by Dr. blank, okay? And it wasn't until I got to know this man a little more that I realized how much his insisting on being referred to by his title fit towards what Jesus was saying here. He would not give people his first name because he did not want to be called by his first name. He had an earned doctorate and he wanted everyone to know it and he wanted everyone to use it because he desired the admiration of other people. So this exists in our world too. When you hear somebody who has the title, you know, the Right Reverend Dr. Jones, that might be a bit of a problem, All right? One time I was in Chicago and I was channel surfing and I came across this very grainy broadcast that looked like a guy had like hung a curtain. Maybe he just closed the curtains in his living room, but the title on the title on, that he had on the screen on his lower third was Prophet, Prince, and then his last name. Okay, I mean, that's quite a grandiose title. And people use titles like this, again, to, to get people to show them respect. It's the desire for the admiration of others that caused people to insist on receiving a certain title. And Jesus says, if you meet someone who is a spiritual teacher and they insist on being called by a particular title, beware of that person. Because their insistence on that title may be an indicator that they want something from you. They want your spiritual life to enhance them personally. This is what makes them a spiritual predator. So, spiritual predators feed on the admiration of others in the way that they dress. They dress to impress. In what they expect, they expect respect in public. And third, they try to get the best seats in the house, not to see better but to be seen. And there's a big difference between the two. Just to defend myself here for a moment, I like to sit in the front, okay? Because I like to see better. I don't really care if people see me or not. In fact, honestly, I would prefer not to be seen. And so I, maybe if that's why you sit in the back, which many of you do, I, I guess I understand that to some degree. But these guys sit in the front. They want to sit in the front everywhere they go. And it's not because they want to see better. It's because they want people to see them and say, Here's a man who is worthy of respect. In verse 46, Jesus describes the ways that they try to get the best seats in the house. He says, and have the most important seats in the synagogue and in the places of honor at banquets. Both of these describe the best seats in the house. And Jesus says they want it in the religious world and in the secular world at large. They want it in the culture and in the synagogue. The best seats in the synagogue, of course, are the ones in the front, Let me say that again, the best seats are the ones in the front, (laughs) all right? Apply this as you will. But these guys wanted the seats in the front because they wanted to be respected. And it used to be back in the day that you would go into church, I would go into church, maybe not you, and I would go into church and they would have thrones right there on the platform, you know, that the pastor would sit on looking very regal. Again, maybe there's nothing wrong with that, but maybe there is. Maybe the desire to be seen sort of presiding over the service like a king would is indicative of someone who desires and craves the respect of other people and will use their religious position to get that admiration that they deserve. But these guys not only want the thrones in the synagogue, they want the best seats at banquets, too. That's what Jesus finishes with in verse 46, when he says, "They have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Jesus has already addressed this sin before in the gospel according to Luke. If, you, if someone throws a large banquet, first of all, they have to be wealthy in order to afford such a thing. Secondly, they want as many people there as possible because the bigger party indicates bigger status. But also, Jesus says, in our world and in our culture, you can see who has the most status by who is closest to the host. And so Jesus says people would... They would get there early, and they would try to ingratiate themselves with the host to try to get the best seat in the house. And Jesus is saying spiritual predators do this. They want to be seen and seen with respect not only in the house of worship, but everywhere else that they go. They want the best seat in the house. And all of these descriptors, all of these three things, describe the kind of admiration that these people seek from others. Jesus isn't saying, look for these three things on a checklist. He is saying, look for signs that the person who has spiritual authority doesn't have spiritual authority because they want to serve, but rather they want to use their spiritual position to be seen, to be admired, to get your attention. They want to, in a sense, be like spiritual vampires who who suck the blood of spiritual attention from the people that they are supposedly designed to serve. These are the people Jesus says should be watched out for. These are those who act like spiritual predators. He goes on in verse 47 to talk about a more insidious way in which they serve as spiritual predators, and that is this spiritual predators will use spiritual position to enrich themselves. Verse 47 says this they devour widows' houses. And this is kind of a cryptic remark that Jesus makes here, and so we've had to. Um, try to use whatever tools are available to us and and our imagination a little bit to try to project ourselves into the situation. Scholars think that what's happening here is that when a man dies and there's some unclarity about his estate, like perhaps... He's got some children, maybe from different wives, who are vying over who should be the proper heir of the estate. That a lot of those things were settled in the synagogue. A lot of those kinds of disputes were brought to the elders of a town or to the spiritual leaders in a town, including these guys that Jesus calls the teachers of the law. And it's very possible that in exchange for performing the service of settling these estates, these guys would take quite a nice sum of it for themselves. They would say, yes, I would would be happy to give you the proper judgment about who deserves to um, inherit your estate, but I'm going to need 30% of the estate's value for myself. This is someone who is using their spiritual position not as an opportunity to serve, but as a chance to be enriched by others. And this is a tough spot to be in because the Bible teaches very clearly that Teachers of God's word should benefit financially from God's word. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong with being paid for serving the Lord in this way. The problem is, widows in their culture were the most vulnerable people in their world, they were the most likely to be exploited. And the fact that these men would charge, if if we understand the passage properly, such a large sum to perform such what really was probably a very simple service, shows that they had no concern for these widows as persons. Rather, they saw it as an opportunity to enrich themselves. And this happens in the world today as well. I've said already that God's Word teaches that teachers of God's Word should be paid by the people that they serve. And I could take you to many passages of Scripture that explain and defend that teaching. But because of that, there are some, there are some pastors, there are some um, what we would call parachurch leaders who care more about fundraising than they do about anything else, who spend more time talking about the needs that they have and the ways in which they could serve in order to try to get the maximum number of donations from the people. And there are some pastors who have enriched themselves, who have taken millions of dollars, not, I'm not exaggerating, from the donations of people, some of those people who are in financially desperate positions, some of those people who live on a fixed income, and yet because they are sold and, and, and persuaded of the need, they, they will put um, a ministry or a minister on their um, monthly Um, contribution list, and they're constantly being squeezed for ever greater contributions. There's nothing wrong with being paid for doing ministry. There is something seriously wrong with seeking to get wealthy off of the backs of others because you have a spiritual position, and that's what a spiritual predator does. Spiritual predators will use their spiritual position to enrich themselves. At the end of verse 47, Jesus also tells us this, that spiritual predators perform impressively at religious activities. They don't just take the title, they actually do well when the performance of religion happens. At the end of verse 47, Jesus says, and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These guys are good at talking. That's how they became teachers of the law. That's why they became teachers of the law in the first place. But because they know much about Scripture, they are able to pray publicly for a long time, with very flowery language, incorporating verses and passages from the Word of God into their teaching. Now, as I said, there's not anything wrong with any one of these things. There's nothing wrong with wearing nice clothing. There's nothing wrong with sitting in the front of church. There's definitely nothing wrong with sitting in the front of church. There's nothing wrong with having a nice seat next to the host. There's nothing wrong with being paid for your ministry, if, if it's a if it's a, you know, a reasonable amount and, and under the right protections. And there's nothing wrong with praying publicly. What's wrong is that these people crave the attention of other people and they will use the spiritual position that they have to get that kind of attention from other people. The problem with these scribes is a heart, a heart that doesn't care enough about God and His truth, but rather sees God and His truth as a vehicle for getting what they really want. The respect and admiration of others. And so you see underneath this sin, there's, or underneath these, this description of sins, there's a sin that could apply to any one of us. Any one of us that cares too much about what other people think is in a position where we don't care nearly enough about what God thinks. Or we might compromise to get the attention and acclaim of others. And so this is what happens with spiritual predators. They may, not do any, they may not do all of these things. They may do other things that fit in. These are examples, is what I'm saying, of things that they might do. But all of them are designed to get as much attention from others. That's the problem with a spiritual predator. Jesus warned against this for a couple of reasons. One, because he did not want us, his people, to be led astray by spiritual predators. But also, he, I think, is warning us against the same kinds of temptations. Truly anyone who has a position of power in the church or outside of the church could be tempted by the admiration or the pay or whatever from other people. They could start looking at the position that they have as a way of personally benefiting instead of a position to serve. So these words of Jesus not only serve as a warning for us to watch out for spiritual predators, but they're also a guard on our own hearts. Why do we do what we do? Do we do it for the praise of men, as Jesus would say in another passage, or for the glory of God? At the end of our passage, Jesus gives the final descriptor about spiritual predators, and he tells us this, that spiritual predators will be held accountable by God. They may be able to suck the spiritual life out of people in many ways, but they're not going to get away with it ultimately, because at the end of verse 47, Jesus said this, these men will be punished most severely. They may be able to get all of the benefits they want out of acting like spiritual predators in this life. But Jesus says that God, this is a divine passive, they will be punished, means God will punish them. And he will do it most severely. And the Bible teaches this over and over again, that anyone who enters into a a position of spiritual leadership needs to be aware of their accountability to God. In James chapter one, 3, verse 1, the Scripture says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so this is a warning to all, to all of us, myself included, for sure, to examine our motives, to think about why we do what we do. Do we do it to enrich ourselves? Or do we do it to glorify God, and so the big idea for this message, the ultimate point of it for us to take away and apply to ourselves, is this don 't let spiritual predators consume your spiritual life that 's what spiritual predators do they consume they live on the spiritual lives of other people the problem, The biggest problem with spiritual predators, while well, there are many problems: one, they steal glory away from God for themselves but there's there's great damage that can be done spiritually by spiritual predators. And that's because people become disillusioned and damaged spiritually by spiritual predators. People who sincerely want to know God and sincerely want to do His will, if they fall under the leadership or the teaching of a spiritual predator, they can be abused in many, many ways. And this causes many people to stumble in their faith. I've met so many people who have told me, I used to be so involved in my church until this happened. And then they drop out. And often what happened is someone in the church abused their authority or someone in the church um, privileged one family or one person against another in a way that the scripture tells us not to do. This causes people to be disillusioned and damaged spiritually by spiritual predators. And so the Bible warns us to watch out for this thing. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 The Scripture says, dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. That's the problem with a spiritual predator. They can either drive you from Christ by their actions, or they can lead you through their false doctrine away from Christ. The Scripture says, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as Christ himself is righteous. And so one of the big threats with spiritual predators is the damage that they do in the lives of people. And so as an application of this message, I'm going to recommend four ways to keep this from happening, to keep you from being harmed by spiritual predator. Do these four things to prepare yourself and protect yourself spiritually. And before I jump into the four things, I'm going to put a banner over them all from Matthew chapter 24, verses 24 through 25, where Christ himself warned, for many... For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time, Jesus warned against it. Christians should not become disillusioned when they encounter spiritual predators because Jesus warned us they would be out there. And he said they'll be very compelling and very powerful. And so what I want to do is protect you and protect us. Not only from being led astray by spiritual predators, but just by being discouraged from their existence. There are so many problems in the church today. The church, the big church, like the big C church, the body of Christ. And we hear about them because Christian news exists and because there's information out there and there's disillusioned people who talk. It's very easy to get discouraged and to wonder if God is really working. Yes, God is working, but Jesus warned us there would be problems. So don't become disillusioned by these things. All right, so here's the four things you do to protect yourself. First of all, be an active part of a biblically functioning church. A lot of people are led astray by spiritual predators because they're not involved in the church. They haven't found a church that believes and teaches the word of God, a church that has a godly leadership structure and one that has accountability built into it. But a Christian without a church... is in a sense homeless spiritually. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. And the book of Hebrews is constantly warning the people of God not to turn away from Christ, but also not to turn away from the church. The church is the body of Christ. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth, the Bible says. Every Christian needs to be in a church, because if you're not, you're spiritually vulnerable. And In Hebrews chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 and then verse 17. Notice how the writer of Hebrews urges the people to be under godly spiritual leadership in the church. He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We're going to come back to this verse later, but just kind of keep that in mind. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In other words, don't look for innovation in doctrine But verse 9 says, Don't be carried away by by all kinds of strange teachings. Instead, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those that must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The, The antidote against spiritual predators is not to get outside the church. The antidote to spiritual predation is to be in a biblically functioning church. And come under that accountability and follow the leadership that God gives you. So that's one, be an active part of a biblically functioning church. Number two, learn the truths of God's word for yourself. Learn the truth of God's word for yourself. Because you need to know God's truth on your own. It will guard you against the deceptions of others. Also, you need it for spiritual growth. And again, the writer of Hebrews says this, in Hebrews 5:12 through 14. In fact, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use, that's the point I'm I'm really getting to by reading you these verses, by constant use, by using the truth of God's word, by integrating it deeply into their life. They've trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. How do you know false teaching when you see it? You know God's word yourself. And that brings me to the third way that you protect yourself, which is, evaluate all teaching against the truth of God's word. A good church will teach you God's word. Knowing God's word will protect you from spiritual predation. And part of that process is evaluating all the truth that you hear, whether it comes from me or or an elder in this church or a teacher in this church or someone outside this church. The Bible says all of us should be evaluating always the truth that we hear against the Word of God and evaluating whether it's true or false. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, Jesus said this, "'To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, "'If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples.'" Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, part of the problem that some people have that leads them astray is that they think that, um, that all matters of doctrine are, in a sense, an open question. And so when someone comes along questioning, they, they say, Well, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Let me consider that some more. Jesus says, You've got to hold to my teaching, and then you know the truth. It's not the other way around. We don't grow in our faith by being skeptical of truth, in a sense. We grow in our faith by knowing what Jesus taught. And then, as we grow in our faith, we're able to discern truth from error. Another passage of Scripture that talks about this is the famous Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness. Notice, they weren't skeptical about it. They received it with great eagerness, but they also did this. They examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. If they're noble for evaluating Paul's message against God's word, then we as Christians should be nobly examining everyone's message against God's word. Whether it's me or another trusted pastor of yours, everything that, that, that we uh, hear that purports to be teaching about God's word needs to be filtered through the truth of God's word and evaluated before it is accepted. And so finally, the fourth thing that will help you prepare yourself and protect yourself spiritually is to watch the lives of those who influence you spiritually do people who promise spiritual growth actually show any growth in their own life it's a good question and it's actually the acid test that jesus gave to describe how to know true teaching from false in matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 20 jesus says this watch out for false prophets they come to you in sheep's clothing But inwardly, they're ferocious wolves, just like the teachers of the law. They want something from you, right? They want to, like wolves, be predators. Then Jesus said this in verse 16, by by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. Sometimes it takes a long time for hypocrisy to come to light in a teacher's life, but eventually it will. And Jesus says, look at the outcome of someone's life. The author of Hebrews in the passage we just looked at said the same thing. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. One of the problems we have in our world where we have these broadcast mediums where one person can write something or record something and blast it out to millions is that we may never get close enough to see what that person is really like. Celebrity preachers, wear the sneakers and get the crowds, might be teaching the Word of God, and they might be living it out in their lives, but they also might be spiritual predators. So that means we ought to be especially careful about them and consider the way that they live. In this world, we're going to face spiritual problems. We're going to face teachers who come along and for their own hypocritical reasons use... Their position to exploit the people of God. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let spiritual predators consume your spiritual life.